Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word because it is right and it is true and it is the best. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us here now. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to welcome those of you who are watching online and in the community center. We're glad that you're with us here today. My kids used to conspire against me to make me look bad in front of my wife. It's true. And at some point or another, every one of them played the lead role, acting it out perfectly. My wife even seemed to manage to get on in on it because she always arrived on the scene right on cue. Take, for example, the time we went to the mall before Christmas. My middle, middle daughter, Chelsea, was about three years old at the time. And uh, we got there. The kids were dressed in their Christmas dresses. Jessica, Jessica McClintock, if that means anything to you. Hair finely brushed, bows, ribbons, uh, in preparation for a picture with Santa Claus. Well, my wife decided that she wanted to go into the Hallmark store in order to get a couple of ornaments for the kids. So she told me what I needed to do while she was in there, and uh, then she went into the store. So uh, in the middle of the mall, there was this decorative pool and a fountain, and I thought it'd be really cool for the kids to see it. So uh, we walked on over there. The pool was about a foot high, and it had this flat, wide surface that ran the perimeter of the pool, and uh, people sat and rested on it. So we sat down, looking at the pool, and then it started. My older daughter, Lauren, decided she wanted to go to see her mom in the Hallmark store. And my middle daughter, Chelsea, just wanted to walk around the perimeter of the little pool, you know. And, and so Lauren then took off, walking across the mall by herself. This is not good. So I made a quick decision, stood Chelsea up, held her hand. We walked a few steps along the perimeter of the, that runs around the, the um, decorative pool there. Then I let go to run after Lauren, who was about halfway across the mall now, and sploosh, Chelsea fell in. <laughs> Big, beautiful Christmas dress, bows and ribbons all swirling around in the water. The moms around there were, looked at me just horrified. <laughs> Well, I quickly pulled Chelsea out of the water, who was crying, dripping wet, and making a puddle on the, on the tile floor in the middle of the mall. And then, at that moment, my wife walked out of the Hallmark store. <laughs> Here's a principle you can live by. Unhappy wife, unhappy life. <laughs> no Christmas picture that night, I'll tell you what. Well, every mom I've ever told that story to tells me that my wife let me off way too easy. And then some of them will go on to tell me some of the things they would have done to make sure I got what I deserved. Well, you know, ever since I can remember, I have learned that's the way it is, that you get what you deserved. That, ever, uh, that for every action, there is an equal and corresponding reaction to succeed in life or in relationships then you had better perform to do well. You have to be good, do good. But the problem with that is nobody is perfect, right? I mean, we all make mistakes. The truth about us is that we are not everything that we should be. That's true in our relationships, in our friendships, our marriages, our jobs, or whatever else it is that we're going after. Uh, we are not always who we should be. What happens then when we mess up so badly that it makes it hard for other people to love us, 
What happens when we look in the mirror and can't accept who we are or the things that we have done? Now, in a, uh, you know, and, and, and when you look into that mirror, just that sense of, of shame and guilt just lingers. It gnaws at you. What happens then? Well, we're left with really two options in a get-what-you-deserve world. You can either fake it, right, and act like you are everything that you should be, or you can try harder. Ever been in that place? Jesus, in this parable, gives us another option. God's alternative to a you-get-what-you-deserve world is grace. Now, grace is a gift given to us that we do not deserve. Like when a police officer pulled me over for making a left-hand turn that I shouldn't have made, and he gave me a warning instead of a ticket. Or like when I checked in for an airplane flight one day, and the attendant there told me that someone had upgraded my seat for me from coach to first class. Pretty cool, huh? That's grace. I like grace. <laughs> grace is a gift given to us that we do not deserve. And grace is the primary way that God relates to us. It filters everything from God to us. When you mess up, slip up, let other people down, grace. Grace, when you're struggling with some sort of self-destructive behavior, grace. Grace. When our job or our relationships or our marriage goes sideways, grace. But many of us have a hard time believing in grace, especially when in this world what you get is ungrace. One wrong is returned by another, and a world of getting even where other people use our mistakes against us in order for them to get ahead, and where, for the, only, where the only winners are the ones who get the base hit and score the winning run in the bottom of the ninth. There's no fan applause and no commercial deal for the guy that strikes out, right? Because the bottom line in a world of ungrace is that you get what you deserve. Now, maybe this morning you view God like that, where God is some sort of cosmic accountant out there somewhere, keeping track of and tolling up all the bad things that you've done wrong, and someday he's going to pay you back. But grace introduces us to an entirely new way of doing math. It erases every entry made against you and against me and shows us that we don't get what we deserve after all. Now at the center of this parable is the master of this feast who has sent his servant out to tell the invited guests that the feast is now ready. The first group of invited guests all develop these excuses for why they cannot attend which in the culture of that day was an insult, the equivalent of which would be like a declaration of war. The invited guests were declaring themselves enemies of the master. So the master sends the servant out to a second group of people, to the poor, the blind, and the lame. The servant tells the master that this second group has already been invited. And it turns out that there are still plenty of seats available at the banquet table, even though this second group did not reject the invitation. So the master sends a servant out to a third group. It's basically the everybody else group. And what Jesus is doing here is painting a portrait for us 
of, our, of the Master, our Heavenly Father, that he isn't like some sort of cosmic accountant or a harsh judge waiting to sentence us for some crime, but rather he is like a love-sick father, helplessly in love with each and every one of us, sending a servant to go out and find us no matter where we are. One of the most popular rabbis in Jewish history once explained how he learned the meaning of love. He was going to visit, visit a friend of his in a tavern, and as he walked in, he saw these two men that were drunk, and they were slumped over the table, both with their arms around each other. One suddenly looked up and looked at the other and said, I love you, man. And the other drunks looked up, looked at the first, and said, what hurts me? To which the first drunk didn't really know how to respond. There was a long pause, and finally he said, how do I know what hurts you? To which the other man responded, how can you say that you love me if you don't know what hurts me? What makes Jesus the greatest lover in all of human history, Jesus, God in the flesh, what makes him the greatest lover in human history is that he knows, he knows what hurts us and he understands it all. When you read about Jesus' life and ministry, you can't help but see how he is able to identify with and understand the people that he met. And there are several places in the Bible where Jesus is described as being filled with this deep compassion for the people and for where they hurt the most. And this is not just some sort of emotional sentiment or platitude that Jesus is experiencing. The Greek word that describes the kind of feeling that Jesus is emoting at that point in time, it means the internal organs, the innermost part of the body. It is the point, here, let me try that one more time. The point is that the kind of compassion that Jesus experienced is a heart-wrenching, uh, you know, gut-wrenching, heart-breaking, literally, it's if his heart is being torn open in pain and compassion for the things that hurt us. Jesus feels every disappointment that we experience, every broken promise that has been given to us, every emotional wound that will not heal, all of our doubts, all of our anger against God for the tragic things that have happened in our lives. Jesus knows it all, and he understands it all. And just like the servant in this parable that the master sent out, our father sends Jesus to us with this invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me right now, just as you are. Don't wait till you get your life all cleaned up because no amount of working harder is going to be able to fix you and make you perfect. Bring it all to me your wounds, your brokenness, your fear, and I'll meet you where you live, and I'll love you just the way you are. There is nothing you have done or will ever do that will make me love you less, and there is nothing you can do that will make me love you more than I already do, because I already love you as much as an infinite God can possibly love you. Do you believe that today? That God loves you? with a deep, unconditional, everlasting love? Do you believe that today?
even with all the mistakes you've made, the record that you have, that God has used all of it to bring you to the place that you are at today? Do you believe that Jesus Christ loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond faithfulness and unfaithfulness, no matter what has happened in your life? He loves you with a love that will never let you go. And he can't stop loving you no matter what. Like a lovesick dad, he just can't help himself. Do you believe that today? Well, the tension in the room when Jesus told this parable was thick enough to cut with a knife. And before telling this parable of the great banquet, Jesus had already done a bunch of things to offend everybody that was in the room. Kind of like Jesus, it seems. His first offense was to heal a sick man that was there. Luke tells us that it was a Sabbath day. And Jesus had this reputation for healing people on the Sabbath day. So the religious leaders brought this guy who was terribly sick just to see what Jesus would do. So defying their critical stares, Jesus reached out and healed this man. Well, Jesus' second offense was to confront the religious leaders' friends who were there, leaders who in public posed themselves as these humble, meek servants of God. But as Jesus watched them scramble and literally running around the room competing with one another for the best seats, the most important seats around the banquet table, well, he confronted them that they were hypocrites, that they really weren't as meek and humble as they had posed themselves to be. And then Jesus' third offense was to confront the host. The guest list was this, ex was this exclusive list. It didn't include the poor, the blind, and the lame. The religious leaders at that time felt that people were poor or they had physical disabilities as God's punishment for something they had done in their lives. They got what they deserved. And Jesus uh, is pointing out that... Um, you know, no religious leader, and recognizing that no religious leader would ever even think of inviting someone like that to the dinner. So when Jesus tells this parable of the great banquet, the parallel between the religious leaders who were sitting around the room and the invited guests who rejected the master's offer and invitation, that parallel is really clear to everyone. The lack of compassion that these leaders had shown for the sick man, the way they related to one another and, and to, um, uh, to the poor, the blind, and the lame, it was all proof of a religion of ungrace. That they were living as enemies of the Master, our Heavenly Father, when they should have been exactly the opposite. Now, I remember when ungrace met me in high school. Before cell phones and social networking, my friends told me about a new way to meet girls. All I had to do was dial my own phone number. Now, there may be some people in the room who, who may not know that phones actually used to be attached to the wall. You just couldn't <laughs> carry them around in your pocket. And, and there was actually on the phone this rotary dial that you had to turn for each number you know, of the phone. You just couldn't push a button. Well, the method was that uh, you, you called, your, you dialed your own phone number. And of course, the phone wouldn't ring. You'd get a busy signal. Beep, beep, beep. But between those beeps was opportunity. 
because girls were yelling out their phone numbers for some guy to call. It was crazy. Well, I tried it, managed to hear some girl's number. I wrote it down, gave her a call, and uh, our conversation quickly turned into an interview. And I was the one getting interviewed. Do you play guitar? No. Do you surf? I lived in Southern California. No. Do you have a car? No. So then you know what she said to me? Here, talk to my sister. <laughs> Who it turns out is about seven years old. Ouch. <laughs> well, that actually had a profound impact on me because after my senior year, I played guitar, learned how to serve, and got a car that I turned into a high ride. Now, somehow, in that twisted world of ungrace, I had learned that you had to be a guitar virtuoso, a shredding surfer, and a hot rodder to pass the interview. I had been shaped by a world of ungrace. Maybe you have, too. Grace means that we are accepted. Accepted for who we are, just as we are. We don't have to change a thing. Not our looks, not our behavior. God accepts us, whether we are beautiful or not, overweight or underweight. He accepts us wholesale, imperfections and all. Everything, everything, everything about us. God knows it all. He accepts you with it all. Every nook and cranny of your being, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You are accepted once, and you are accepted forever. And when you let that sink in, when you really let that sink in, it begins to feel like it's too good to be true. Or maybe it's too good not to be true. That's grace. God's grace is um, unconditional love for us. And His grace, by His grace... He totally accepts us for who we are and for everything that we have done. Now, there's one last lesson about grace. The parable concludes with the master telling his servant that those who developed excuses and rejected the master's invitation to the banquet will never get a taste of that banquet. They will be excluded. Apparently, there is a catch to grace, and only one. Grace must be received. That happens... When we say we are sorry to the people we have hurt, and when we ask for God's help to heal what is broken in us, it's the only way to get free of our guilt and of our shame and of our sin and to restore our relationships with God and with the other people around us. Jesus calls that repentance. The need for repentance and forgiveness is universal. In relationships with others, Repentance and forgiveness, it breaks that cycle of vengeance and the need to get even, to give back as much pain as we have received. The problem is we can never get even, can we? The cycle will always escalate until someone or something puts a stop to it because one payback only solicits another payback, which only gets another payback, and so on. In relationship with God, repentance, and forgiveness, it restores the distance that we have created between us and God. And it is the first step toward healing the brokenness in us that caused us to sin in the first place. 
Now, a few years ago, I attended a reconciliation seminar in Rwanda, and most of you are familiar with Rwanda's story. You know that over a 100-day period, there were nearly a million people who were tragically killed in a genocide. And now Rwandans recognize that their greatest need is for repentance and forgiveness, to heal that country and to reconcile relationships. Perpetrators confessing their crimes and the details of those crimes, and the families of victims offering forgiveness. Well, on this particular day, the workshop leader talked with us about the effects of genocide and how there are only victims in genocide, the killers and the families of those who kill, because everyone is bound to one another. We're caught up in a cycle of resentment, of anger, of hatred, of fear, a desire for vengeance and paybacks. And his point was that, uh, that no one ever gets free. So as to illustrate that, he took a rope and tied it around a perpetrator. And then he took the other end of the rope and he tied it around the family member of a victim. Then he asked the family member of the victim to take a few steps forward, which she did. And of course, as she did, she pulled the perpetrator along with her. And then she turned it around, asked the perpetrator to take a few steps forward, which he did. And as he did, he pulled her along. And his point was, again, that we never get free of one another, never get free of this cycle of vengeance and resentment, of anger, without repentance and forgiveness. Our lives are bound to the people we have wronged, to the people we have hurt, and we are bound by resentment, hurt, and anger. Well, then the leader talked about freedom. And that how none of us can get free on our own. That the only one who ultimately can set us free is Jesus, who paid the price on the cross, paid for all of our sin. And then these two, they confessed what they needed to confess. And they forgave what they needed to forgave. And he cut the rope, and they were free. That's grace. Max Lucado describes grace this way. God is for you. Your, your parents may have forgotten you. Your teachers may have neglected you. Your siblings may be ashamed of you. But within reach of your prayers is the maker of the oceans, God. God is for you. Not maybe, not has been, not was, not would be, but God is. He is for you today, at this hour, at this minute, as you hear these words. No need to wait in line or come back tomorrow. He is with you. He could not be closer to you than he is at this second. His loyalty won't increase if you are better nor lessen if you are worse. He is for you. God is for you. Turn to the sidelines. That's God cheering you on. Look past the finish line. That's God applauding your steps. Look for him in the bleachers shouting your name. Too, too tired to continue, he'll carry you. Too discouraged to fight, he's picking you up. God is for you. God is for you. Had he a calendar, he'd have your birthday circled on it. If he had a car, he'd have your name on the bumper sticker. If he had a tree in heaven, your name would be carved on the bark. God is for you. Knowing that, who is against you? Can death harm you? Can disease rob you? Can your purpose be taken away or your value diminished? No. 
Though hell itself may set itself against you, no one can, can defeat you. You are protected. God is for you. God broke the chains of sin and ungrace and paybacks, and you get when you, what you deserve by coming to this earth in the person of Jesus, taking on himself all of our sin, all of our mistakes, everything we have done to deserve God's anger, everything we have done to deserve God's rejection. Jesus took it all upon himself, and he paid the price for it all. He took the worst of what this world has to offer. Hatred, betrayal, rejection, crucifixion on a cross. And he transformed those things into the one solution to the human condition. Jesus got what we deserved so that we could get what we do not deserve. Love, acceptance, freedom. Now, that's grace. So where do you need God's grace in your life? Who needs to see God's grace through you? And what are you going to do about it? So our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the miracle and the mystery of grace. And pray in these moments, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us new. Tear down the barriers that keep you from us or actually keep us from you. Help us to receive the truth that we are loved unconditionally, accepted without any condition whatsoever. And we are set free by your wonderful, marvelous work for us on the cross. We receive it, Jesus, in your name.